0: Turn in our Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We were here last week. We're coming back again this morning, and we'll read a portion of the text that we read last week, but this morning with a different emphasis. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse number 19. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates rent off their clothes And commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison uh, of the prison, were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Trials. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to trials, to difficulties in his way. He often spoke in his epistles about the trials that he faced and how the Lord helped him or ministered to him during those times of trials. Here we have in Acts chapter 16, perhaps one of the most powerful and poignant reminders about the truth that we can learn about trials. As the Bible describes for us, a really difficult trial that Paul and Silas went through and what God did for them and in them and through them as a result. Now, I suggest to you this morning that The Apostle Paul isn't the only one who ever went through trials. And as a matter of fact, it's very likely that you and I are facing some trials ourselves. In fact, it's been aptly said that you're either in a trial, getting ready to go into a trial, or just coming out of a trial. One of the three. Trials are an ordinary part of life. Testings, difficult circumstances. None of us like trials, but God always has a purpose. And this morning, I'd like you to think with me for just a little bit about some truth about trials through the example here of the Apostle Paul and Silas and the trial that they faced. Notice with me, first of all, the reason for trials. When you go through a difficult time, and I go through a difficult time, our tendency is to ask a question. Does anybody know what the question is that we almost reflexively ask when we enter into a trial? Why? Why? We always want to know why. And the reason usually is because we think, if I can figure out why then maybe I can undo whatever why is and get out of this trial as soon as possible. The reason for trials, so often when we go through difficulties, we simply want to know why. We think if I could only know the purpose or why this is happening to me, then perhaps the trial would be easier. Now we see here as an example for us, two men who are serving God, preaching the gospel. There's some wonderful spiritual work that's going on through their ministry. They've been faithful to the call of God. They're exactly in the middle of God's will, and yet they encounter a trial. The Bible doesn't tell us that they asked why, but I suggest to you that I would be asking why, and you would probably be asking why. In fact, we might be asking why in this way. Lord, I'm doing exactly what you told me to do. Why are you making things so tough on me? I mean, Lord, I thought I was following your will. Why am I going through a trial? I thought everything would be okay. Now, there's some possibilities for why you might be going through a trial. One of them, which we need to point out, is that you have sinned against God. And the trial that you're facing is a consequence of your sin. You know that when you sin against God... God always attaches consequences. And those consequences are often difficult things that come along with the choice to sin. And you say, why would God do that? Because he wants us to realize how damaging sin is. And he wants to give us the motivation to avoid or eschew sin. So sin always has consequences. And it's possible when people go through hard times that they are facing the direct consequences of the sinful choices that they have made. That is clearly not the reason that Paul and Silas are facing this particular trial. A second possibility is that you are being affected by someone else's choice. And sometimes other people make choices and they think, well, this choice will just affect me. But that choice then actually affects many people around them And you may be going through some hardship or some trouble or some trial in your life. And it really has nothing to do with the choice that you made, but it's with the choice that someone else made. And I'm reminded of, for instance, Joseph, when his brothers chose to sell him into slavery. That wasn't a choice that Joseph made, but was he affected by that? Yes, deeply so. His entire life was turned upside down. He was sent to another country and his circumstances completely changed through no fault of his own and no decision that he made, but that someone else made for him. It is possible that you could be facing a trial today because of a choice that someone else made. It's also possible that you're facing a trial today because you live in a fallen world. Because we live in a world that's cursed by sin and has the curse of sin upon it all around us, there's suffering, there's pain, there's difficulty. You cannot live life without facing pain and problems and difficulties. You say, why did I get sick? Because you're a human being living in a fallen world. People are sometimes looking for answers to these things. Why did I get cancer? Why do I have this disease? Why do I have this problem? Because you're a mortal being And God has told you that sickness is a normal part of life in this sin-cursed world. It could be nothing more than that. Could just be the natural consequence of living in a fallen world. And all of us have those kinds of trials that we face. Also, it's possible that you are facing a trial because you are being obedient to God. And because of your obedience to God... The world is actively resisting your obedience to God. This is what Jesus calls persecution. And Jesus tells us that persecution is not some strange thing, but it is a normal thing. And then we're also reminded that it is not strange when fiery trials come upon us because we are Christians. It's a possibility that you are doing exactly what God wants you to do And you are facing a trial. Now, as you think about the trial that you may be facing right now, or perhaps the trial that you recently came through, you can do some evaluation and ask yourself, which one of those four options best fits the trial that I'm going through? But I do want you to understand that no matter what the reason for your trial, there is always a greater purpose that God is up to. And this we can never forget. We always have to remember that no matter why we may be going through a trial, it is always God's purpose to do something good in that trial. For instance, you say, why would God allow consequences for sin? Well, ultimately, it is part of this that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And God attaches consequences to sin so that people can come to a realization of how serious sin is. And then they can turn to Christ. They can repent and get right with God. And that is the good work of God in their life. In other words, it's actually the grace of God or the goodness of God that he attaches consequences to sin. So that we can understand that we need to be reconciled to God. That's God's good work. Not everyone will respond to that, but that is God's good work. Could be uh, this morning that you're going through a trial because of your faithfulness to God and because you're serving the Lord and, and you're going through a trial because of persecution or because of some kind of resistance to the work that God wants to do through you. You say, how could God do something good in that? Well, we'll see here in this passage because that's exactly what this is an illustration of. But truth be told... There will be many times when we go through trials and we never actually come up with a satisfactory answer to the question, why? We just don't know. All too often, you and I are like Job's friends, and we think that when something bad happens, it's a punishment for something that we have done And we're trying to figure that out so that we can get the punishment out of our life, not realizing that it may not be that at all. In fact, a lot of fruitless effort is invested in trying to figure out why in the middle of trials instead of just looking to God and trusting Him for what He is up to. So that's the reason for trials. But then I want you to notice, and we'll use these men as an example this morning about the reality of trials. What happens to us in times of trials? What is it like to go through a trial? In the, the passage that we read, of course, as we pointed out last week, Paul and Silas were confronted by some men who owned a young lady as their slave, and she was inhabited by evil spirits, and because of that, she had uh, some ability to Predict the future and to soothe, say. And these men were taking advantage of this young lady and using her for their own purposes to make money. And it was causing a lot of confusion about the gospel. And finally, Paul turned and he cast the demons out of this young lady and freed her. But in doing so, he also took away these men's source of income. And they became angry against Paul and Silas, and they came and brought them before the magistrates. And in all of this, we see some things about how trials sometimes work. Notice with me that it says in verse, uh, in verse number 19 that they caught Paul and Silas, and this multitude then rises up in verse 22. You see that? The multitude rose up together against them. And the first thing that I want you to consider is that when we go through trials, we often feel opposition or somehow ostracized from the crowd or from everyone else. In this case, Paul and Silas are separated out from the rest of the people here in Philippi, and the multitude is against them, and Paul and Silas are set over by themselves. Now, I want you to consider how difficult it is when you feel alone and cut off from others. And oftentimes when you're going through a trial, this is something that happens. You begin to feel alone because your burden, the trial that you're facing, the difficulty that you're going through is something that you feel no one can really understand. No one can really identify with this. And, so I, I, and, and sometimes the trial that we're going through is not something that we can talk about. It's not something that we can be open with others about. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes trials that we're going through are the effect of something that's going on in someone else's life, and we can't really tell people what's going on in that other person's life, so we can't really talk about the trial that we're facing. Are you all understanding what I'm saying? But that makes you feel so alone because you feel like, well, I can't really... Be clear with others. And sometimes you come to church and people say, how you doing, brother? How you doing, sister? And and you feel like you can't say anything. So you say, I'm doing great. Praise the Lord. It's wonderful. How was your week? Oh, it was pretty good. It was, it was, it's good. Everything's fine. But inside you're saying, it's not fine. It's not good. But I can't say anything because I'm just in this position where I'm cut off. And then... The other thing is that sometimes there's trials that happen in our life that cause us to withdraw from others. And there's various reasons why this might happen. But that feeling of aloneness, of being pulled away from everyone else, in and of itself is a trial. In addition to whatever trial you might be facing, that is another trial because you feel very much cut off. You feel alone. You feel as if who understands, who knows what I'm going through. And we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. So understand that when people are going through a trial, they often feel alone. And you say, well, you know, we're reaching out to them and we're trying to comfort them and we're trying to be there for them. Yes, but there still is a component of aloneness. And I want to point out to you that another thing is Satan often highlights this. Because if he can, he wants to separate people more and more from, from everyone else and get them into a place where they are alone, 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 because then he can really mess with their head. So here's Paul and Silas, and yeah, they are uh, being pushed off. They're, they're in, in a very real sense, just the two of them alone cut off from the crowd. And this is how trials often happen. But then the other part of the reality of trials is seen in what the multitude did to them in verse 22, the magistrates, as the multitude rose up together against them, the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. Now think about that for just a minute. How would you feel if in front of a large multitude of people, all of your clothes were removed and you were standing without a stitch of clothing on your body? You say, what is this about? It was embarrassment. It was shame. It was to bring shame upon these men. To expose their nakedness before the crowd was to bring shame upon them. By the way, it's the same thing that happened to Jesus Christ when they put him on the cross. They took his clothes off of his body and they did that to create a feeling of shame. And oftentimes when you're going through a trial, there is some element of shame or embarrassment in your life. It's true that often our trials bring us to this place of embarrassment or shame, that such a thing could be happening to us. And a lot of this is related to our way of trying to answer the question, why? Because we're so much bound to this thinking, well, if somebody's going through a trial, it must be because they did something bad. So therefore, whenever anybody goes through a trial, we're trying to divine what bad thing they did, just like Job's friends And we're trying to figure out, okay, how did you disobey God? How are you not faithful to God? And then inside, you've got that same thought, and you're wondering, well, what did I do? How did I disobey God? And you're thinking, everybody else is thinking this about me. Oftentimes, when you're going through trials, it's a season of weakness and difficulty, and no one wants to be weak. No one wants to look as if they can't handle the circumstances in front of everyone. But that's what trials do to us. Trials reduce us to a place, oftentimes of shame and embarrassment. Someone gets sick, they have a disease, and they're embarrassed to talk about it. Why? Well, sometimes because what is everybody going to think? I don't want to get into all the details. I don't. It's not of anybody else's business, and all those sorts of things. And so trials have a tendency to bring some embarrassment to us. Remember. The, uh, the, the woman who came to Jesus looking for healing from an issue of blood that she'd had for 12 years, it said that she had gone to doctors and they had taken everything that she had, but they had not been able to make her any better. In fact, everything that they had done had only made her worse. But when she came to Jesus, she was so ashamed of her condition that she didn't even want Jesus to know that she was touching him. She came secretly to touch him, hoping that she would be able to be healed without having to talk to Jesus or admit what was going on in her life. And, of course, Jesus knew what was happening, and he called her to himself and spoke to her about her situation. But this is what trials often do. Trials often bring us to a place of embarrassment. I'm thinking that some of you right now can identify with how this has happened in your own life. Maybe it's happening even now with something that you're dealing with. Notice the third thing that can happen as the reality of trials. After they took their clothes off, the magistrates commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison. So there is physical pain and hurt that is often associated with trials. In the case of Paul and Silas, they had stripes laid upon them. This is a a form of punishment that we uh, would frown upon in our modern society. We would not accept anything like this happening in our country, even to criminals or people who've done wrong. But the idea is that after they stripped their clothes off of them, a skilled man with a whip took that whip and used it to lay stripes on their back, to lay welts on their back, to remove skin, to draw blood, to... to, to create wounds upon their back. And in the Jewish tradition, this would have had a limit of uh, 40 stripes save one, 39 stripes. But in the Roman tradition, there was no such limitation. So these men were beaten. We would suggest that they were beaten severely, that they were hurt, that they were in an extraordinary amount of pain. And the pain that they would experience from this scourging would last for a long time. In fact, these kinds of beatings would leave scars on a person's back that would cause pain and difficulty for them for the rest of their life. And so they faced some physical pain and hurt. And there are times when trials are more emotional or more spiritual than physical, but there are also times that we go through trials that equate to physical pain. And you know, when your body hurts, it affects the way you think and the way that you feel. These men were deeply affected by what happened. We're going to see in just a moment how they responded, but I don't want you to minimize the pain of what they went through. Any one of us would be weeping in pain from this kind of treatment that they received. And oftentimes, trials are like that. They cause a great deal of pain and hurt in our life. Finally, we notice that they were cast into prison and the jailer was charged to keep them safely. Look at verse 24, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. He was taking no chances on them getting away, which reminds us that trials, the reality of trials is that usually we are unable to escape that trial. We look at that circumstance and we say, there is no way out. There's no way that I could get out of this situation. I mean, these guys are in the inner prison. That means they're as deep into the prison as they can get. Their feet are secured in stocks, which means that their feet are elevated. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Their feet are elevated and most likely they are laying on their backs on the ground And their backs have just been beaten. These guys are in an uncomfortable situation, but there is not a thing they can do to get out of that trial. Are any of you understanding that we can go through trials and we look at that situation, we think there is just no escaping this. There's not a thing I can do. There's no doctor that can solve this. There's no scientist that can solve this problem. There's no organization that can get me out of here. I have no recourse. There is no... No thing that I can do to change the circumstances of my life. And that's how trials often work. One of the things that Satan designs to do in a trial is to bring us to a place of hopelessness. To bring us to a place where we say, there's no hope. There's no way that I could ever be delivered from this trial. It's just how it's going to be. And there's no hope that I could ever experience joy or happiness. There's no light at the end of my tunnel. This is what Satan wants to do through trials that come into our lives. And I want to point out to you that another reality of trials, which is not highlighted in this passage, but is definitely a part of a trial, is that all the while that you're going through all of these things, Satan is whispering in your ear. And he's saying to you, God has forsaken you. This is what you get for serving God? Come on. If this is how he treats you, why would you serve him? Why would you love him? Uh, Aren't you you sad for yourself? Uh, uh, It's not fair that you're going through this. Look at all those other people in the church and the things that they're not having to go through. Why do you have it so hard and they have it so good? He's whispering all these things in your ear because he wants you to have the wrong response to the trial. All right, so notice we've seen something about the reason for trials and the reality of trials, but now I want you to notice something about the response to trials. And this is really the heart of the message because the Scripture says something unusual in verse 25. It's something quite unexpected. We wouldn't actually expect that Paul and Silas would respond in this way, but at midnight it says that Paul and Silas prayed... And sang praises unto God. So here they are having gone through this incredibly painful trial. They themselves must be in agony from the beating that they've received. They're stuffed into the inside part of the prison with their feet in the stocks. And at midnight, I don't know who looked over at who, but we'll say Silas looked over at Paul and said, Hey Paul, do you remember that song we sang in the congregation not too long ago? My voice isn't feeling too strong, but maybe if we sang it together, it'd be all right. And they just started to sing together. I don't know what song they sang. The Bible doesn't record it for us, and we don't have it passed down. Maybe it's a song that we'll sing when we get to heaven, and God will let us know what that song is. I doubt if it's in our hymnal, but maybe it's in our psalm book. Maybe it's one of those that's found in the book of Psalms, That they sang praise to God and they prayed to God. And I want you to think about this response for just a moment because we're learning something about how you and I ought to respond to trials. Now, you and I, our natural tendency is when we go through trials and difficulties, we complain. We pine. We mourn. Sometimes we turn in a prayer request. Pray for God to get me out of this trial as soon as possible. I need to be done with this trial yesterday. Pray that God would get me out of this thing. Or we want everybody to know how great our suffering is. Listen, I need you to understand how difficult my my situation is. And we go into detail. By the way, there's nothing wrong with letting people know what is going on in your life. But sometimes we can fall over into the place of really highlighting how difficult our life is and how hard our trial is. And, and sometimes we're just fishing for people to come along and make us feel better. But the truth is, they can't make you feel better. Our natural response is not to do what Paul and Silas did. Paul and Silas made a choice. You say, well, they were just, they were just phenomenally positive-minded guys, and that was their natural inclination. I don't think so. I think they made a decisive choice, a decisive choice that you and I can also make during seasons of trial. They made a decisive choice to pray, that is, to leave the situation in God's hands and to trust God to do what is best. To pray means to ask. It means to beg or to beseech. It means they realized there was no other recourse in their situation than to come to God. And so they came to God and they said, Lord, we're going to leave this with you. We're putting this situation in your hands. These men believed in the power of prayer. They had seen God answer prayer and they trusted that God would do what is best. Sometimes people will say, pray for me to be healed. I'll be honest with you, I don't always have the confidence to pray for God to heal you. I'm just being honest with you. Sometimes it's God's will that you continue to be sick. Sometimes it's God's will that that situation that you're facing continue on. It's not always God's will for the church to pray, Lord, deliver them immediately from this situation. Now, sometimes God will lead us to pray in that manner, but oftentimes it's better to pray, Lord... Help them to respond scripturally in this trial. Lord, help them to keep their eyes on you. Help them to be strengthened with might in their spirit or by your spirit in the inner man. Lord, help them to have wisdom. Help them to trust you. Help them to lean on you. Those are things that we can pray scripturally. We can't always pray scripturally. Lord, get them out of this situation. I don't know what Paul and Silas were praying. Perhaps they were praying that God would deliver them, I'm not sure. Not only did they pray, but they sang praises to God. Now, if you're like me, when you feel down, you probably don't feel much like singing. Amazing grace probably doesn't come to your lips when you're discouraged and downtrodden. You're probably not thinking about singing, praise Him, praise Him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer, when you're going through a trial and a trouble. When you don't feel like getting out of bed and facing the day, you're probably not thinking much about singing praises to God, but this is the right response. This is actually the response that we find modeled for us in the book of Psalms. Oftentimes, the psalms are created in this way by the Spirit of God. The the psalmist faces a crisis, a trial, a difficulty, struggles with that trial within his spirit, his inner man, and then comes to the place where he yields it to God and ends the psalm with praise. Trusting God. Sometimes, by the end of the psalm, the trial is resolved, and sometimes it isn't resolved. But understand that whether the trial is ongoing or resolved, praise is always appropriate. We tend to think of praise as appropriate after God has answered our prayer and delivered us. In other words, if we were sick and then we got better, we say, praise the Lord, I feel so much better. I understand that. We ought to praise God. What's harder is to say, praise the Lord, I feel sick. Praise the Lord, life is hard. Praise the Lord, there's a difficult trial that I'm going through. That's not so easy. But doesn't the Bible say, in everything give thanks? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's much more difficult to give thanks and sing praise In the time of trial. Now, we have the the luxury of knowing how this trial ends, right? So we're saying, atta boy, Paul and Silas, keep singing down there. They don't know how this is going to end. They've been threatened with death. They've just been beaten. They've been thrown into the most secure part of the prison. They have no reason to believe that they're going to be released or that somehow they're going to get out of this trial. But they are singing nonetheless, It takes tremendous faith in God to praise him on the darkest days. It takes tremendous faith to to trust him when you have no idea how he's going to solve that trial. Now, there are times, I think maybe you're like me. I'm just going to tell you what I'm like. There's times I go through a trial and I come up with three easy options for God to solve the trial. And I say, Lord, this would be a piece of cake for you because you're omnipotent and almighty. I've got three choices I'd like to lay before you and you could choose any one. I'd be happy with any one of those. And you know what? If he does one of those, then I'd say, praise the Lord. That's wonderful. You know what's hard? Is when you're in the trial for a while and it doesn't seem like God is taking it away. When it doesn't seem like the situation is getting any better or... Actually, it seems like it's getting worse. Then, do I praise God? Then, do I have a song in my heart? Then, do I worship Him? You know, God ought to be worshipped regardless of your circumstances. He's worthy of your worship. And so we see the response to trials. I admonish you this morning that an appropriate response in your trial. and, And don't be... Don't be phony about it. Don't don't do it to impress anybody, but from your heart, sing praises to God. Say, you know what? I don't understand what's going on and I don't like the circumstances, but that doesn't mean that you can't sing praises to God. Now, you'll notice that they were released from their trial. And verse 26 records their release, it was quite spectacular. As the prisoners were listening to them singing praises and praying to God, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Now, just for a moment, some in the audience are probably saying, come on, how unlikely. There's no way such a thing could happen. It's very... You know, it's very handy to have. It's, it couldn't be more than just a legend or a story. These, these sorts of things don't happen. And, and you can think whatever you want. But I want to propose to you that if God is, in fact, almighty, he could certainly do something this small. Amen. He could certainly make an earthquake to loosen the doors and the shackles of the people in the prison. So your problem isn't so much that you don't believe in the miraculous. It's more that you don't believe in God. Amen. Because this would be consistent with the power of one that we worship whose name is God, who is the Lord God Almighty. All right, so they prayed, they sang. There was an immediate response from the Lord, it seems, and they were released from their trial. Now, for many of us, we say, well, you know, if I knew that I could sing three, three stanzas of Just As I Am and get out of the trial, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I mean, it'd it'd be a no-brainer, of course. I I I could definitely sing a couple of songs if I thought the trial would be over. That's not the point. They didn't know when the trial would be over. They didn't know what God was going to do or how God was going to deliver them. They were praising before they understood the timing of the trial. But I do want to point something out to you. No matter who you are and what trial you're going through, that trial always has a time limit time limit. For Paul and Silas, this was a fairly short time limit. It wasn't going to last very long. Some of you are here this morning and you say, but what about my condition that I have that I expect to have till the end of my life? You're telling me that that's got a time limit? I am. Because one day you're going to come to the end of your time and you're not taking that trial with you on to heaven. That's just something that's going to be here for this time, this place, and by the way, God is able to deliver people from things that doctors said are incurable. That, that the authority said there's nothing we can do. God is able to do that. He's, he's capable. I'm not guaranteeing you he's going to do it, but he is certainly able to. I just want you to understand that at some point your trial is going to end. There's something about trials to where they start to feel like they are never going to end. They're going to last and last, and last. But understand this scriptural truth. Your trial will not last one second longer than God has designed it to. You can trust God with the timing of your trial. And you can praise him while you're waiting for your release from that trial. Now, this may seem like a small consolation if you're in a difficult and long trial But understand that God's power is certainly able to be deployed in your life and on your behalf to bring a deliverance. Paul and Silas were miraculously delivered. I do want to point out to you that though they were delivered from the prison, they weren't delivered from the physical consequences of the beating. The scars didn't go away. The pain of their their wounds did not disappear. So there was still some ongoing trial That was a component of this, but at least they were released from prison. And then I want you to notice finally the result of their trial. And you say, what what was this all about? Well, you could just look at it from the outside and say, this was persecution, plain and simple. These guys were being faithful to God, and some people in Philippi didn't like it, so they came against them and they misused them and abused them, and it wasn't right, but they went through. That's all this was about. But notice that whenever men mean something for evil, God means it for good. So God had a good purpose in all of this. And we find that in the following verses that we read when we discover that there was a man who was keeping that prison who sprang in and began speaking to Paul and Silas. Now, I'd like to point out to you that I think there's a good chance this jailer had been listening to them praying and singing for a while. He had learned a few things about the God of heaven and about Jesus Christ who they worshipped. He'd learned something about the gospel and what it meant to be saved. He'd learned something about the, the love that these men had for God. So when he came and he sprang into their midst, the Bible says in verse 29 that he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You say, what was God doing? Well, certainly God was doing something in Paul and Silas, but God was also doing something through Paul and Silas. And I want to remind you this morning that when you and I, as the people of God, go through a trial and we have the faith, to praise God and to give Him honor and glory, to worship Him, to commit our situation to Him in prayer and trust Him with the the course of that trial. There are people who are looking on. There are people who are watching your response to that trial and there are people who are affected by your testimony. In this case, here's a jailer who needed to be saved. He'd been listening to Paul and Silas praise God And by the time God delivered them from the trial, this man was ready to hear the truth. He was ready to receive the gospel himself. What you may find in the midst of the trial that you go through is that some hearts may be made tender to the gospel. Some people may observe your faith and question, what does it mean to trust God in that way? Now, remember... This won't necessarily be the case if you keep all of the details of that trial completely secret. If you keep that all to yourself, then it's unlikely that people are going to be affected by that. Now, I do understand that there's different trials that are more appropriate to share with others than other other trials are. But understand that sometimes our reticence to share what's really going on in our life actually obscures people from seeing what God is doing in us and through us. And so don't, don't be so hesitant to share with people. Even, even we find this sometimes in a congregation. We're very hesitant to share with others what's going on in our life, what we're facing, the difficulties that we're going through. And, and, and some of that is, well, I don't want to be the person who's always talking about my stub toe and my broken, my broken fingernail and, and pray for Aunt Susie's dog's cousin who got sick last week. I don't want to be that person. No, please don't be that person. But it's okay to talk about what God is doing in your life. And part of what God is doing in your life, part of the journey is the trials that we encounter. And and we ought to be able to share that with others. But notice that the world looks on and they see things that are going on in people's lives. And oftentimes there will be opportunities to minister to people that you wouldn't have had otherwise apart from that trial. Sometimes we struggle with how do I pray for someone who's going through a trial? One specific way that you can pray for them is that God would use them to be a witness of his glory and his grace to the people who are observing them go through that trial. Because this is almost always a part of what God is up to with the trials or the difficulties that we face. Is that God is wanting to work not only in us, but through us in the life of some other individual who needs to know the Lord like we do. Now the consequence of all this, a little bit farther down in verse 33. After this man got saved, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his Straightway. So, not just he was saved, but lots of people in his home were saved. And did you notice there in verse 33 and in verse 34 as well that Paul and Silas ended up having their needs met in the midst of all this? So, here's a guy who got saved, and Paul and Silas are still hurting. They haven't even had their wounds dressed. They haven't even they haven't even had the chance to have some ointment or some medicine put on their stripes. And, and so this jailer brings them into his home. And he, because he's been changed and his life has been transformed, he puts his energy into ministering to them and, and, and meeting their needs and dressing these wounds and caring for them. And what you find oftentimes is that God will allow you to experience ministry from other people in the midst of your trial, as you remain faithful in that trial to praise Him. Now, I told you that we would talk this morning about the truth about trials. And I hope that you've understood some things about trials. Trials are real. Mm -hmm. Trials are are hard. In fact, there is a 100% chance that there are people sitting in the same row as you, or at least in the same section as you, who are going through trials. Maybe you're not going through a trial right now, but there's people all around who are going through difficulties. And you say, what should we do? How should we handle that? Well, first of all, realize that trials aren't some strange thing. They're a normal part of life. But then the number one thing for us to remember is, in this trial, no matter how I feel, God is still worthy of praise. God still ought to be worshiped. God ought to be exalted. Even if I'm confused, even if I'm hurting, even if I'm I'm tired and I wish I could be released from this trial, even if I'm frustrated, even if I'm unclear on what God is doing, I still know this truth. God ought to be praised. And in due time, if you'll take the opportunity to praise God in the midst of your trial, in due time you'll start to make some sense out of what God is up to. And even if you never figure it out in this life, one day in eternity, you'll be able to look back on that trial and see the hand of your father and understand that he had not neglected you through that time, but in fact, he was doing a work in you and through you. So this morning, let us sing praises to our God, even when we're in a time of trial.